All right, go ahead and open your Bibles to Revelation 2, Revelation chapter 2. We're going to pick up where we left off last week, um, talking about the church at Ephesus from a, from a 30,000 foot view. So we're, we're zoomed out still before we actually get into Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus itself. Um, you remember last week we talked about the birth of the church at Ephesus. We talked about the, the explosion that took place in the city as the gospel was birthed there, um, as it began to grow and, and bear fruit. Uh, we saw Apollos there teaching and preaching in the synagogues. He, he was competent in the scriptures. He had this zeal and this passion to preach the gospel. Um, he was pretty much spot on, minus a couple things. And, and then we saw Aquila and Priscilla. They pulled him aside and said, hey, man. Let us help you with this. Um, and so he obviously responded well to their instruction that, hey, you were a little off here. Um, teaches us, you know, as we talked about last week, how much we need community to actually grow. That we never grow together, or we never grow in, in Christ separate from the body. There's no such thing as an orphan Christian that lives over by themselves. When, when the gospel is birthed in our hearts, one of the things that it begins doing as it bears fruit, it builds community. Like-hearted believers begin to come together, and so there's community. We're going to see that play out even as we talk about things this morning. And so Apollos, he grows in community there because of Quill and Priscilla that are willing to reach out. And that's another thing the gospel does. The gospel moves us beyond our comfort level, you know, because there's a part of us that we don't want to be confrontational, or either we, won't, we don't want to be the one confronted. But, but we need both of that. There are times where we need to go to someone that we see that they're in error, they're in sin, they're wrong. Now, Apollos, in the situation that I'm talking about, for those of you here last week, you know he was just teaching. He just didn't have the full picture of the gospel yet. He, he was preaching still about John's baptism. He wasn't teaching about what Jesus had shown them about baptism of the Spirit, that the Holy Spirit had come. But there are times where we see sin in other people's lives. We need to just confront them. No different than I would do with my children, or I hope that my wife would do with me and our family. But the gospel moves us beyond just family, right? It makes all of us family. Because whether you like me or not, if you're a believer, we're going to hang out for eternity. For all eternity. Forever and always. And so... You know, community, for it to function the way that it should, is that we help each other grow. So there are times where we need to confront, but how do we confront? Grace and love. How do we receive when someone confronts us? Without being defensive, without, with realizing that we haven't arrived yet. Because you haven't arrived. If you're still here on planet Earth, you haven't arrived. If you're just wondering, wonder if I'm ever going to get there. Not until you get to heaven. So you, you haven't arrived yet. All right, so, so the, the things explode there. Um, we see things happening. The, the town is turned upside down. It changes the socioeconomic climate of the city of Ephesus. The gospel does. Um, people see miracles taking place. You remember we read about the seven sons of Sceva, the high priest, that decided they wanted to cast a demon out, and that didn't go so well for them. Um, they confronted the demon-possessed man, demon 
replies what, hey, Jesus we know, Paul, we've heard of Paul, but we don't know who you are. And so they, you know, they sort of put the whoop on him, um, so to speak. And, and so they're, they're watching all of this happen. The citizens of the city are, and it, it, they're amazed. And the next thing we see happening, they're bringing all their books out on sorcery and witchcraft, and they're burning these things. They're throwing down their idols that they had been worshiping. And the whole landscape of the city is changed by the gospel. And then we, then we read over in Revelation 2 this dire warning to the church at Ephesus. So the gospel is birthed, things explode, the church is just is blowing and going. And, and then we, we read this about the church in Revelation 2. So... Verses 1 through 7, we read this last week, but we're going to revisit it today. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yes, this you have. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that Jesus' words to the church at Ephesus would ring true in our hearts. That, Father, we would truly see in our time this morning... Father, what it is that we're chasing after, what it is that we love, what it is that, God, we have elevated to, Father, prominence in our hearts. And if it is anything besides Jesus, Father, make that obvious. God, help us to repent as your word teaches us to do. And help us to place our faith and belief and trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. We pray and ask that you would do this work for our good and your glory and the advance of your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, as we're reading through Revelation 2 there, what did Jesus point out that they did? As you're reading through, what did he point out? Where did they miss the mark? It's very clear. He says, you have abandoned your first love. You've walked away from it. Now, I don't know about you, but, but I can handle getting in trouble more so when, when people are speaking to me generally than, more so than when they get specific. I mean, I'm guessing a lot of you are that way too. We're, we're okay with that. We, we may not like that. You know, I'm okay if, I'm, you know, if, I, if someone in the crowd did something wrong and sort of the whole crowd's getting in trouble, but, but then whenever they get more specific, and they're singling me out, or they're singling out my action, then I begin to squirm a bit. I begin to get more uncomfortable. 
Because when it's in general, we kind of just shrug our shoulders, right? Which, yeah, yeah, no big deal. But when people get specific, we kind of hang our head. We'll get defensive. Anybody else here do that? Somebody starts to point out things. You start defending yourself immediately. You're trying to justify your actions. That's what we do, right? Especially whenever we believe we've been wronged. See, Jesus just got very specific. He just got very real. And, and does and he does so through his spirit in our lives today. He's obviously doing this in the life of the church at Ephesus there, the people that are part of that church, but he's still doing it today through his spirit in our lives as we read his word. The question for us is, how will we respond when he speaks to us? How do we respond whenever we read God's word and he speaks? Well, there are two things that Jesus tells them to do. He says, repent. This is so simple. He says, just repent. And he says, then do what you did at first. It's not complicated. Just repent and do what you did at first. So that leads us to ask two questions. Question one, repent of what? What are they to repent of? The answer, a cold, pragmatic heart that loves ministry and doctrine more than Jesus. Happens, doesn't it? Are ministry and doctrine good things? Yes. But they're really bad things whenever we elevate them above Jesus. When we make our lives more about that than we do about Jesus. And that's exactly what had happened there in the church at Ephesus. If we were to flip through the Old Testament and we're, if we were to read about guys like David. You know, we talk about David so much from the Old Testament. Why, why do we do that? Because David is one of these guys. He was just so real. I mean, he just, talk about transparent. I don't know that anybody's more transparent than David in the Old Testament. He just put it out there for everybody. And so we relate to that, but then we're also, we stand in awe of David because we see that he had this insatiable desire and love for God. Just, it never could be quenched. He just wanted more and more of God. Now, was he perfect? No, he blew it so often. But he loved God. We, we, we read throughout church history, you know, just this past Halloween, you know, Halloween's also Reformation Day. That was the day that Martin Luther, he nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the castle in, in Wittenberg. Reformation Day. We read about guys like, like Luther, and we're just, we stand in awe of them. What they did, the way that they viewed God, Augustine, uh, George Mueller, Jim Elliott, Hudson Taylor, I mean, we could just list all these guys, and we stand in awe of them. We're like, man, the way that they loved God, the way they talked about God, the way they lived the Christian life. Why are we so amazed by these guys? Because many of us are a lot like the believers in Ephesus. You see, for them, pragmatism had become their God. Pragmatism had become their God. You, you, you perhaps recall from, from last week when we started this, looking at the church at Ephesus, I pointed out that there are many similarities between the church at Ephesus and the Western American church of today. And when we sort of step back and we look at the landscape of the church in America, when, when we stop and we examine our own hearts, where is the, we don't use this word much anymore, the angst, where is this angst for the living God? In our lives. 
Where is the, the person whose hearts are aflame for Christ? You know, I can, I can name you a few people that I think that they have this angst for the living God, that their hearts are aflame. And do you know why it's easy to name those few? Because they stand out because there's so few. Not a big crowd, is there? But there should be. There should be. You see, like the Ephesians, we need to repent of ascribing to truth that hasn't changed the heart. There are a whole lot of people. There are a lot of people in this city. You guys have heard me give the stats before. Houston County. We'll just take the whole county. Roughly 101,000 residents in Houston County. 83% of the residents here claim religious affiliation to, a, to either a mainline or a Protestant denomination. So that's Methodist, Assembly of God, Presbyterian, Baptist, that's including Independent Baptist, Southern Baptist, you name all the different denominations. Those are mainline and Protestant denominations. 83% of our county. So they are ascribing to truth, yet less than 20% of that 101,000 will be in a worship gathering like this today. Less than 20%. We're in the Bible Belt, right? Which, you know, I don't like to call it the Bible Belt. We're the church belt. We're in the church belt. Well, that's what we do. It's part of life. It's part of the culture. But yet, where are, where are the people? Why is it if we were to drive through neighborhoods this morning or we were to drive by Cracker Barrel? Cracker Barrel's busy this morning? Sunday morning. And you know what? Most of the people, if we were to walk around, you've heard me say this before, if we were to walk around Cracker Barrel and go, hey, do you believe this biblical truth? Do you believe this biblical truth? Do you know what most of them would say? Yes. 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 They ascribe to a truth that has never changed their lives. Now, it's easy for us to look at those people and go, they just don't get it. They don't get it. Well, here are people who were deeply involved in ministry. They were all about doctrine that didn't get it either. So before we start feeling real good about ourselves, like, doctrine's good. Man, look at all that I'm doing to serve Jesus. So were the Ephesians. And Jesus said, you need to and you need to do what you did at first. So, what did they do at first? Well, three things that we see them doing from Acts. So, flip, flip back over to Acts 19. You know we were there last week. So, these are some of the things that we first saw happen in Ephesus. All right, Acts 19, verse 17. Says, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. So the first thing that we see happening in Ephesus is that the name of the Lord was being extolled. So the first thing we see them doing is extolling the name of the Lord. There was a fear of the Lord created in his people that led to his name being extolled. So there was exaltation of Jesus. Now you're in a city where everything other than the living God was being extolled. The gospel is birthed. The church starts exploding. Fear falls upon the people. And all of a sudden, God's name is the one being exalted. It's all about Jesus. It's all about the gospel. There was worship of his name. And, and 
you know, if you've been reading through Proverbs like I've encouraged you to do, you constantly see this tie to following after God, being filled with wisdom, worshiping Him is tied to having a right fear of Him. We're not talking about, oh, I'm afraid of God, but this reverence, this awe of who God is, how grand and big and glorious and great and good and gracious that He is. And we see how small we are and how much we need Him. That's what was happening in Ephesus. Now, would you say that describes the church in America today? Would you say that that describes our church today? Well, let's get more specific, since we all like specificity. Would you say that that describes you today? Does it describe me? So where do we begin? We begin. How, how do we get to that that we see happening there in Ephesus at the very beginning? We've got to get back to knowing, to knowing and understanding the nature and the character of God. Today, a vast majority of preaching and teaching that takes place in churches all around our land are built around pragmatics. It's pragmatism. I've been guilty of it. I have. I think, I think most in the church today have. We, we feel this need that I just got to give people steps on how to do this and how to do that. And, and steps are important. I mean, they are. They're helpful. I mean, I think systems and processes are, are, are essential in our lives. But the problem is if we elevate the systems and the practices and those things above understanding and knowing who God is, His nature, His attributes, we've gotten something way out of whack. Because if all we do is focus on systems and how-tos and processes, then who are we centering on? Us. Me. We're making it about us. You see, but those things, that's not what God desires for us to do. It's not what He wants. I, I've had people... And, and you've heard this too. Maybe you've been guilty of saying it. I just don't get much out of his preaching. In other words, he didn't give me enough steps. In other words, he just, you know, all he talks about is Jesus. All he talks about is the gospel. All he talks about God, how holy he is, how righteous he is. He didn't give me steps. I, I didn't walk out with any plan. See, what happens whenever all we do is focus on systems and processes and plans, it produces something called moralism. We become a moralistic people when we focus on those things, but we have no foundation on which to stand. Our church associates with the Southern Baptist Convention. For countless years now, Moralism has been the unofficial battle cry for the SBC. Which is one of the reasons why there's, for years, you know, you saw the, this, this political activity that was pushed by the SBC. And by the way, November 4th, Tuesday, go vote. Go vote. You should. You, we have a responsibility as believers. But we go vote not believing that voting or the right political candidate is the answer to the problems here. It's not the answer. That's not the solution. 
You know, the days of the moral majority. I'm all for... Now, there are some things that I would like to return to, no doubt. But that's not the answer. Our hope isn't in politics. If, if you could turn this country back to God by simply electing certain politicians, then the evangelical community would have already done it. It would have happened. But the reason the country is not turning back to God is because the church hasn't turned back to God. And churches aren't turning back to God because individuals and families that make up the church have turned their backs on God. You see, loving and following Jesus isn't simply about morality. We teach children to do this and to do that. We teach adults to do this and to do that. And if that becomes our focus, then all we're doing is practicing moralistic therapeutic deism. We make people feel good about themselves because of the things they do or the things they don't do. So what we're teaching people to center themselves on are themselves, not the gospel, not the word of God. This is why so many people walk away from the church because we have, we have blown up man, made him so big, and we have shrunk God down. You see, you let something traumatic happen to us. Let something horrible happen. And if, and if we're buying into this moralistic therapeutic deism, what happens when something bad happens? We say, well, God, I was good. I did all of this for you, and this is how you repay me? You let this happen to my kid? You let this happen to my spouse? I thought you loved me. Look at how many years I've been serving you. I, I didn't watch those bad movies, God. I, I, I didn't go to those bad concerts. I didn't do this. I didn't do that. God, you owe me. You see, that's what we teach with moralistic therapeutic deism. We are taught to put God in our debt, but you can't put God in your debt. How do we know that? Because really faithful people in Scripture had it go really, really bad for them. You can listen or you can flip over there and look if you would like in Hebrews 11. Very familiar passage for many of you. Hebrews 11. Let me just read verses 32 through 38 for you. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell you of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms Enforce justice, obtain promises, stop the mouths of lions, quench the power of fire, escape the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead back from or back their dead by resurrection. Now let me pause there. So here's a group over here that were faithful. Man, it was awesome. They put foreign armies to flight. They they raised the dead. It's amazing. They saw God do mighty works. But then there's another crowd that were just as faithful, that loved God just as much, and listened to what happened to them. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, and they were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, 
wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. You see, it doesn't always go well for the faithful. But if we buy into this belief that God is somehow in our debt, we think that that shouldn't happen to us. But yet we know that Jesus promised what? Suffering. If you follow me, you're going to suffer. So that just doesn't make sense. You're right. Humanly speaking, it makes no sense. Kingdom speaking makes every bit of sense in the world. It makes logical sense in the kingdom. You know, we, we were talking, was it, was it Wednesday night, for those of you that are in my gospel community? We were, did we talk about Jim Elliott that night, Wednesday night? Mention him? Yeah, Jim Elliott, you know. Um, he, he died back in the 50s. He and, he and several other guys that were taking the gospel to an indigenous group there in Ecuador. You know, his life cut short very, very early. And yet he was serving God. Here's the amazing thing God did with that, though. In his death, God has amplified what Elliot did. And he's brought much more attention to the gospel and much more attention to God and how great and big he is. I remember hearing John Piper tell this story, and it is always stuck in my mind. He told the story of a father who came to him. Um, Piper had been in a series. If, for those of you that have, have ever listened a lot to, to Piper, you know, Piper doesn't give you a lot of one, two, three, four. Not in the sense of go do this, go do that. He may give you one, two, three, four about who God is and what he's done. But Piper was, had been preaching a series about the attributes of God. There's not a lot of how-tos on that, okay? It's just not. It's, that's difficult. And so he's, that's what he's doing every week. He's just preaching about God's greatness, his holiness, all these things. Well, this, this dad calls. There's been something horrible that happened with one of the members of his church. A young, this dad's young child had just something medically had gone terribly wrong. They're in you know, critical condition in the hospital, and, and Piper went to see them. And, you know, as he's there just trying to minister to the family, love on them, encourage them, the dad stopped him. And he said, thank you. Thank you for preaching what you've been preaching. He said, because that is the only thing that has sustained us through this. That's it. Preaching about who God is, how big he is. That's what sustains us when everything falls apart. Because the how-to's, they're great sometimes, but when our life's falling apart, we need more than how-tos, don't we? We need, we need to know that it's not just that we've got somebody to hold on to, but there's somebody big enough that holds on to us. See, just thinking about those preaching on things like that, just not giving a lot of practical steps, that doesn't always seem like the right thing to do, but when we preach theology rightly, it becomes incredibly practical. The gospel always bears fruit. The better we know God, the more we act out of our knowledge and love for Him rather than a do this or don't do this mindset. C.S. Lewis made the following statement. This is so good. He said, They all say the ordinary reader does not want theology. Give him plain, practical religion. I have rejected their advice. I do not think the ordinary reader is such a fool. Theology means the science of God. 
And I think any man who wants to think about God at all would like to have the clearest and most accurate ideas about him which are available. I love Lewis. I love the way he says things. So the bottom line for us individually and the church universal is that we've got to get back to discussing and teaching about the triune God of the universe. D.A. Carson says, The better we know God the more we will want our existence to revolve around Him and we'll see that the only goals and plans that matter are those tied to God and our eternity with Him. So knowing God is what sustains. Knowing God is what empowers. It is what creates this awe in worship, which is what we were created for. I think those of you that have been a part of Redeemer for any time, you know, our desire is not to give you this wow experience when you come in here. We don't structure it that way. We don't want it to be that way. We don't want you to walk out and go, man, that was, that was an awesome worship experience. If we have done that, we have failed you. What we want you to do is walk out and go, God is so awesome. God is so big. That's what we want you to get. Not be enamored by anything that we do but be enamored by who we belong to and who we sing about and who we preach about and who we live for. Acts 2.43 says, And all came upon every soul, and wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So the first thing we, we see them doing is extolling the name of Jesus, which came out of a fear of God that led then to the second thing that we see. They had a culture of confession. So first there, there's this extolling of the name of God. Then there's this culture of confession that develops in Ephesus. Look at Acts 19, 18. And, and many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. Now remember, Ephesus was a raw and edgy place. A lot of times we look at, we look at cities today and we're like, man, that place is just evil. And, and we think that's a new thing. That's been around since man was first created. So there's always been those issues. So Ephesus is this, this raw, edgy place. And Christians were, were coming out. They were divulging their practices. They said, hey, this is what we've been doing. And, and knowing the culture of Ephesus, of the city there, and the people, that those practices were probably pretty wicked. would make all of us feel a little uncomfortable. Those of us that have been raised in a more moral culture they were just coming i was just being honest and, and all this this raw this edgy wickedness is an incredible beautiful culture of creation in, in the midst of all of that it's just this happening it's just beginning to develop and now when we hear the word confession it makes us a bit uncomfortable doesn't it it does I mean, we, we and we, we start that is that's Specificity showing its ugly head again. We have to get real specific. Like, you know, God, I sinned. Well, how exactly did you sin? I mean, we just, we, let's just kind of sweep it out. Let's be more general. We're to be specific. That's what was happening here. How, how, do, we build a conf, how, do, we, how do we build confession into our community? Well, listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.2. 2. He says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, we know that, that, that Paul taught on more than just the cross. 
We know that. You read all of his letters. There's more than just about the cross there. But, but what Paul is saying is that I can't talk about sex. I can't talk about money. I can't talk about social justice. I can't talk about community very long before I tie the reason and the need of those things back to the cross of Jesus Christ. It's all tied together. See, when, when, when you are exalting the work of Christ and the cross, who gets to boast? I don't. You don't. We didn't do anything. We didn't do anything. You, you've got nothing. And so when we talk about the cross, what we're doing is elevating Jesus, who He is, what He's done, what He's continuing to do. There is a climate that exists out there in the, in the church today where people just sort of want to... I've heard this from another pastor before. Who just, you just sort of want to lean against the cross just want to lean on it and say, man, you need to come get some of this. It's good stuff. Instead of bowing at the cross. Huge difference between just, hey, man, just leaning here against the cross. Man, this is awesome stuff. This is hip. This is cool. There's nothing hip or cool about bowing in front of the cross. Because as we bow at the cross, we're admitting, I am nothing. I am in need of everything. That I am wrong. Not just that I do wrong, but I am wrong. The reason I do wrong is because I am wrong. And that I am in need of Jesus. He's my only hope. He's the only thing that I can cling to. You see, when we're just leaning against the cross, we're still saying, hey, look at me, I've got it going on. Look at me, I've got this thing figured out. Hey, come over here, be a little bit like me. You see, but when we bow at the cross, and we understand how big Jesus is, how small we are, we realize there's a lot of room in the shadow of that cross. And we say, hey, come. There's room. There's room here beside me. You, you need Jesus. You see, for us to build a culture of confession, we must make the cross and Christ central in all that we are and all that we do. You also have this side of it. There's a foolishness to what we believe, isn't there? There is. If anyone ever says it back to you, if anyone ever says back to you what you believe as a Christian, you know that the Holy Spirit has done a work in your heart without question. If somebody says back to you, says, so, so let, me, let me get this straight. A, a virgin gave birth to a, to a man... To, to a guy who was God. But he was only part God, yet he was still completely God. Um, he, he lived a perfect life, and so, so they killed him because of that, because he was perfect. Um, they buried him, but then he came back to life, and then he floated off to heaven. Um, and then, let me make sure I get this part of the story right, he's going to come back one day. He's going to be riding a white horse, the clouds are going to part, and everybody's going to see him. That, that's what you believe? And you, yes. That's absolutely what I believe. Jesus is going to do that. I believe, I know without any shadow of a doubt that one day the sky's going to part, Jesus is coming back as not just the babe in a manger, but the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the way that we see him talked about in Revelation 19 when he's on that horse. We see it and we believe it. When people say it back and they may think we're nuts, but we want to man, don't you want to go? Why wouldn't you want to go? Why not? 
You know, it really does tell you that the Spirit's done a great work in your heart because if we just laid that out logically, you go, that's nuts, man. Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24 says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight declares the Lord. There is much power in confession. You see, one of the things that that keeps us from confession is this belief that we've got to make ourselves grand and large and perfect in the sight of other people. But whenever we see God rightly, as Jeremiah lays out there, that God says, hey, you know what? You should not be boasting in anything but me. We realize, I don't have to put up a front. And for those of us that belong to Jesus, we know we don't have to justify ourselves anymore. We are already fully justified in Jesus. I've been made perfect. I don't, have, I don't do things perfectly, but I've been made perfect in Christ. And so I can just be real about who I am. I can be real about my struggles. I can be real about the things that, that, that hinder me in life. And I can just be open with people and say, hey, I struggle with this. I need your prayers. I need your help. I need your counsel. I need community. There is power in confession. We want people to be honest about having struggles and being in the valley. That's what creates a culture of confession. Confession itself builds community. Because it's part of what the gospel does. Because as you're listening to people confess, just be honest. And I'm not talking about somebody just airing dirty laundry for the sake of dirty laundry, like, oh, look how bad I am. But genuine confession, just say, this is where I am. I'm struggling with this. I need help. As you're listening to people do that, you realize that no one's perfect but Jesus. No one is perfect. And and you know what else you realize? This is where the, the community aspect begins to build. You realize, I'm not alone. I'm not the only one that struggles with those things. So so you mean you struggle with that too because I felt all alone and isolated because that's what the enemy wants to do with us. That's what Satan does. He knows our weaknesses. He knows where we we tend to to have areas where we'll get off into temptation. Temptation gives birth to sin. And, And then we're over here. We're living in our little world of sin. Isolated, we think we're hiding. And that nobody else struggles with that. See, here's where the power of confession comes in. When we're open and honest about that, we realize, I've got a brother, I've got a sister over here. They're struggling with those same things. And and maybe they've had victory in their life. Maybe God has brought them through that. And God's God's helped them. I remember, uh, Hope's back there with the kids, but I, I remember, and some of you know this, this has been years ago now. It's crazy how fast time flies, but, but Hope dealt, early in our marriage, dealt with depression terribly. And she felt so ashamed of it, like she was failing. Like somehow she just wasn't loving God enough, she wasn't, you know, applying Scripture enough, and she just, so she wanted to keep that quiet and keep that to herself. And I watched God do this miraculous thing in her life as the Spirit began to work, and I had been on a mission trip overseas, 
coming back. She was picking me up at the airport. She was picking me up in Atlanta, and we were driving back. Uh, Lily wasn't around yet. Ruthie was a little bit older. Tobin may have, yeah, Tobin was a baby at that time. And we're driving back, and Hope's just in tears talking to me and just saying, I can't live like this anymore. I can't keep on like this. And, and it was right after that that we were at an event where a, a lady that was a, a missionary's wife had stood up, and she was she's just being open about her depression and how God was changing her and doing these things in her life. And we left that event as we were in the parking lot. Hope told me, she says, next year I want to be that lady. And, and by God's grace, she was. She was standing in front of that same crowd. Well, actually, it was different people too, but it was the same event. Just God did that. Hope didn't go and ask, could I speak at this thing? Whatever just happened, God put her there. And it all began with the Spirit's work in her life, leading her a place where she was willing to be open with people and about what she was struggling with. It started with me, then it branched out, and eventually there's a room full of people, and she's confessing her struggle with, with depression, and then how God brought her through that, and how God is still sustaining her every day, because any of you who have ever dealt with depression, you know, it doesn't just go away. It, it's there lurking every morning, isn't it? It's like, oh... Her eyes are open. Let me jump on her. That's what depression does. See, but by being open about that, here's what happened. People started coming to her. She was able to speak into other people's lives, to speak the power of the gospel into their lives because she was willing to be open. And see, when we're willing to be open and just confess, that's not about exalting us. That's about exalting Jesus and our need of him and his power over those things. 1 Corinthians 1.27, Paul writes, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Isn't it amazing that when we show and confess our weakness, God does unbelievably strong and beautiful things. Not only do we need a culture of confession, not only do we need to fear and extol the name of Jesus, but we need to do the third thing that we see the new believers at Ephesus doing. They destroyed their idols. Acts 19.19 19 says, And a number of those who practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. That is a chunk of money. A lot of money. Now, I'm not really into book burning. We're not going to have one next Friday night or anything. Okay, I'm not a... Um, and in today's world, I mean, let's be honest, today's world, book burning is associated with extremist groups or even extremist churches. I remember reading a few years ago about a church in North Carolina that um, it, was, it was at Halloween, and they were, they were hosting a book burning, and they weren't just burning books, they were also burning particular Bibles. Um, the ironic thing is that the church's name is Amazing Grace Baptist Church. Um, I would say that they're... they're their name does not fit at all who they are because there's no grace in those places, um, not at all. The church leaders there had deemed um, the following versions, the Good News for Modern Man, the Evidence Bible, I'm not even sure what that one is, um, New International Version, the Green Bible, I guess that's all about the Green Movement, I have no idea, and, and the Message, as well as a, a number of other versions of the Bible as Satan's Bibles. Uh, that's what they posted on their website some time ago. 
And so the attendees of the book burning and the Bible burning, they also set fire to, these are their words, Satan's popular books, such as works of heretics including the Pope, Mother Teresa, Billy Graham, and Rick Warren. So they're just, they're having a grand old time doing all this, burning all this. It was a little different setting in Ephesus, okay? They weren't burning the works of, of Mother Teresa or Billy Graham. Um, they were burning books on witchcraft and sorcery. Now, if you've got that stuff in your home, we'll schedule a book burning, okay? Just let me know, and, and we'll, have a, we'll have a party, and we'll get rid of that stuff. Um, that's what was happening in Ephesus. These people were dabbling in witchcraft and sorcery. That's not a good thing. Not a good thing at all. God, he, he doesn't exactly smile upon those kind of actions. And so, when, with them doing that, with them bringing these books and burning them, they're burning and destroying their idols. So, so what does Jesus tell Ephesus to get back to? A fear of God Almighty that makes them extol His name. Where a culture of confession and openness is reality of everyday life. It's, it's a place where people can admit that their only hope is Jesus Christ. And then, you know, when those things are happening, guess what happens next? You destroy your idols. Because you realize, I have no hope in that. None. John Calvin says that our hearts are idol factories. And you know what? He didn't say this, but I think we all know this, especially in modern day world. Factories don't take off, do they? They never shut down. Somebody's always there working. The same is true with our heart. It's always. My heart never takes a break from trying to produce idols. Always producing something else for me to worship, something else for me to make ultimate in my life. Constantly making new idols. That's, that's what our hearts do. And we see this happen in Ephesus. We, we watch this play out. You see, they started out with the gospel. Everything was awesome. And then before you know it, their, their God isn't Jesus Christ. Now their idol is the truth and the ministry that they possess. They took a very good thing and they made it an ultimate thing, and that's a bad thing. So this thing that, that started out gospel-centered, it got way off the rails. And the scary thing is, we typically don't see our idolatry, do we? Not right to begin with. We have blind spots. There's a reason why they're called blind spots. Every one of you have them. Um, you know, I, if you go get in my vehicle, I've got the little round mirrors on the side of my mirrors, and those aren't perfect, but they help. They help my blind spots so that I can see if a vehicle's coming up. I know some of the, the new vehicles that you go by, they've got little sensors that blink if a car's coming up to let you know something's in your blind spot. But even still, what should we do? We should always be looking. Always be vigilant. Always looking to see what's in our blind spot. This, this is why we have to reemphasize the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. What does the Spirit do? John 16, the Spirit glorifies Jesus. John 16, He reveals Jesus. 1 Corinthians 12, He leads us to Jesus as our Lord. Romans 8, He empowers us to live like Jesus. In John 14, He gifts us to do ministry like Jesus. In John 14, He reminds us of Jesus. Acts 1.8, He empowers us to witness about Jesus. 
Jesus tells us to be His witnesses, but not until. Not until we have the Holy Spirit. So this isn't just about learning a method, mastering some technique that's out there. What He's saying, it's about you becoming nothing and about me becoming everything for you. You see, it's when, when we become nothing, something starts to happen. So what are we to do? What are we to do to repent of cold-hearted pragmatism? To get back to what you did at first, to extolling and confession and tearing down idols. Do you remember when you first became a believer? It just happened, didn't it? Man, you were just so in love with Jesus because you, you, for the first time, you realized just how good God is that He saved you. And, and, and you didn't want anything in your life that was going to get in your way of relationship with Him. Now, you weren't perfect, and, and you were probably very raw still because you're growing, but you just had a desire to grow. And whenever someone, they pointed out something in your life is wrong, you're like, I get rid of that. I'm, I'm just going to do away with it. Now, I'm not saying that was easy, but there was just this desire to do that. But then something happens as we walk along, our, uh, along through life, it, it gets easier to kind of just... We're good with those things. We're okay. Yeah, we follow Jesus, but we're, we're okay with this too. And we sort of, we've, we've elevated these other things above Jesus. We're to get back to what we did at first. Extolling, confession, and tearing down idols. And if, if that's what they were to do in Ephesus, there's no doubt that's what we need to do as well. Christ's letter to the church at Ephesus is a great reminder that we are not our own. It is a reminder that the church doesn't belong to us. It is His church, not our church, and when we get off track and don't correct ourselves, we're headed for disaster. All the warning signs are there. The question is, will we pay attention to the warning signs? Jesus ends the letter in Revelation 2. He who has an ear, let him hear. That warning that existed for them still exists for us today. He's still warning us to lay aside and repent of what has taken His place. We are to extol His name. We are to exalt His name to create this culture of confession to destroy our idols. He who has an ear, let him hear. The church at Ephesus chose not to listen. They chose to continue following after their idol rather than the one true God, and by doing so, Christ removed their lampstand, their light. How do we know that? There's no longer a church at Ephesus. You go there today, there are ruins of where churches used to be. In a country where the gospel exploded, the country of Turkey, is today 99% Muslim. Jesus is always faithful to his word. He who has an ear, let him so, what is in your life that you have abandoned Christ for? What is in your life that you have elevated above Him? It's time to return. It's time to repent and to do what you did at first. Let's pray.